Hello and welcome to episode 5 of Blank Page Books. I'm Alan and today I'm joined by John and Jess and we are going to be talking about some experimental fiction, some strange avant-garde fiction and we're going to be discussing B.S. Johnson and his novel Christy Mallory's own double entry. Uh, we'll then get into a discussion as well about some more experimental or avant-garde books and some of the ones that we've enjoyed the most. As ever, please follow us on Twitter uh, and on Facebook. You can find links in the descriptions as well. Uh, thank you very much for listening. Mallory's own double entry, which is a novel published uh, in the 70s, uh, 1973, I think, and it's by B.S. Johnson, a British writer of... Why would anyone use those initials if that's what they had? Was that like not a, a sort of an abbreviation back then, like B.S.? Could well, could well have been, uh, possibly to do with his great self-hatred. Uh, yeah. Maybe. My friend of mine who isn't full of self-hatred as far as I'm aware, his author name is B.J. Marshall. I used to know somebody called B.J. Yeah. Yeah, but that's kind of, you know, bullshit. You can't really spell it in a good way, but B.J.? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I might, just to let the listeners know, I put my hand out and made a face. <laughs> my trigger. My trigger. My trigger. Um, so, let's start with you, John. Mm-hmm. So, uh, B.S. Johnson, known for being quite an experimental writer, self-consciously so, you wanted to be that way. What do you reckon to Christy Mallory? Um, well, I'm tempted to kind of do a meta-commentary on a podcast uh, through Christy Mallory's. So, mm-hmm. like, say things like, we're pretending this is a new episode, but we've just recorded the one before, but I wasn't there, but I was in a different room reading this. Um <laughs> Christy Mal, I think B.S. Johnson, um, this book is amazing. It's an incredible piece of work, and I think it's by far and away the best thing that he's done that I've read. So I've read another couple of his books. Um, I think the thing that really, it is experimental in the sense that it's kind of, it's a comment on the process of storytelling. Um, so it'd be interesting because... Um, there's no page for Christy Mallory's own double entry on tvtropes.org, um, which is basically where I get all my information for everything. But it's just a deconstruction of tropes completely, whilst actually having a really compelling narrative of its own. Do you think I it mean, does? Hmm? I, I said, do you think it does in a way that basically said, I don't think it does have a compelling narrative, I guess? Well, I just, from reading into it, and when I read it the first time, I, I always thought that you could tell this story without the meta uh, discussion of the actual writing of the book, which goes on all the way through. I mean, and the bits, I think the thing that really kind of comes across in this book is the humour of mm-hmm. it. And it's interesting, because when you say experimental, a lot of the time you just think very po-faced, chin beards, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas most experimental literature I've read, um, with some kind of obvious exceptions, is really funny. Playful. Yeah, yeah, playful yeah. is definitely the kind of words. I mean, the, I think 
you know, I'll stop in a second, but this book is definitely both very playful and very angry and kind of also aware of, of its own absurdity a lot. Yeah. Um, and I, I think having, because, you know, I read this as an 18-year-old to begin with, it kind of, although it's supposed to be experimental, I just saw echoes of lots of other things in it. Yeah. So, like, Spike Milligan, uh, Pacoon uses kind of similar things, obviously, um, at Swim Two Birds, yeah. but they do kind of different things. I think one other thing that kind of came to my mind was something that I read years ago uh, on Audio Galaxy, if you remember that torrenting site, where it talked about experimental music. <laughs> and he said, and their comment on it, because they talked about each genre, and I was trying to learn about it, and someone's comment was, well, there's actually no such thing as experimental music because people don't release the experiments, they release the successes. So that would be the argument that there's no such thing as experimental. That's, well, that's what he said himself. Maybe maybe you're misremembering because I read an article where he said that about yeah he was quoted as saying that about himself like he doesn't he really balked at the idea that his writing was experimental because yeah to experiment was to court failure and yeah he only released these successes. Uh, Sorry, because <laughs> I just read that because it was that, in a it was John a, was silent for the rest. Of the <laughs> it was, was unimportant for the rest of the podcast. <laughs> It was in Jess, a, would you like to talk about the novel? <laughs> it was in a Telegraph article, I think, about... Um, it was like a sort of little retrospective of uh, B.S. Johnson, which made me really excited to read this. Um, and then I was just quite disappointed when I, when I did read it. Um, out of interest, when did you first read it, Alan? About 18 months ago, two years ago. Uh, okay. Because I was, I was wondering, it made, it made sense to me that John said that he first read it at 18 and um, really enjoyed it. And I think it would have been the kind of thing I would have really liked when I was, um, you know, around that age. But it's, yeah, what you said about it reminding you of various other things. Yeah. I, yeah, I, I felt like that. But, um, and, and so it didn't, I was almost surprised, like, oh, this is meant to be experimental. Mm -hmm. And um, it just, it, it most reminded me, I think, of Muriel Sparks stuff, really. But it's Muriel Spark coming after B.S. Johnson, that's the thing. Because there is a kind of... Yeah. Fi fi there are things that tend to, you know, can seem like they're she? cliched because they've started them off. Well, listen, no, but she... Um, I don't... You'll know this better than me, Alan. Did when she do the she with Miss Jean Brody? Yeah, she um, Driver's Seat. That's where this, I think. Or about or concurrent with it. I don't know. Let me just look it up. But similar, similar to the Muriel Sparks stuff, and um, you know, I know this is contentious because Alan, you love her, um, <laughs> whereas I find um, her interesting and her work really interesting, but find it quite cold. Mm -hmm. And even though it sort of can amuse me, it amuses me or makes me laugh in a very kind of, um, you know, it's very ironical, yeah. and. I'm just not that into that kind of writing. I don't. I mean, with this, I just felt. Uh, well, we should give a bit of a synopsis, shouldn't we? Um, Christy Mowry's 17, is mm -hmm. he, when, at the start of this? And um, he basically wants to be around money, or he wants he wants money, yeah. so decides to be around money. Oh, and... He doesn't just want money, though. It's quite clearly stated he wants money and sex, and that's <laughs> it. That is all he wants in life. Yeah. So he, he starts joining, well, he ends up learning how to be a bookkeeper and things like that at which point he comes across the double entry system. Yeah, so, so have, which is a system where you have credits on one side and debits on the other. And he, sorry, sorry, it's gone. No, you go on. Oh, well, <laughs> the, I mean, the, if you, to sum up the sort of idea of the novel 
in a sentence, I guess. It's that he decides to, he likes the system and he d decides to use it as part of his life. So he starts exacting, you know, he, he starts having uh, debits and credits in his own life. So when a, when a harm he perceives as a harm is done to him, he'll assign it a ranking, a value, and he will do some harm in the world or do something to even out the the two sides of the ledger in his life. Which starts off being kind of funny in terms of what he perceives as, you know, a harm and how he gets his revenge with, you know, obviously he's going to great lengths to avoid calling it revenge by having this system. Um, but then for me, it, the way that that escalates doesn't become funny. I just thought he seemed like a psychopath because oh. <laughs> essentially that's what he, that's what he is. Mm. I don't want to give away any spoilers, which uh, prove <laughs> my hypothesis there. No, I don't, I don't know. We just have to assume that everyone's already read it because it's, uh, you know, yeah. it's sold more than Harry Potter, I believe. <laughs> Harry Potter's one to seven. <laughs> So, uh, Johnson did a few different things in his books, didn't he? So, um, if you've read other works of his... I've not read any. There's, for example, um, one of his, Albert Angelo, mm. is a novel about a supply teacher, and in that book, well, the, the famous thing about that book is that there's part of the pages cut out, physically cut out, so that you can see the text f from like two or three pages ahead um, before you get there. And then... You, you go through this process of knowing what's coming and what's revealed in that bit of text is is quite exciting and interesting and you want to kind of know how it's going to get there. Uh, he did a book called um, House Mother Normal, uh, which is set in an in like a old people's home and it tells the story of one night or one event in that home from, from the perspective of several of the residents and depending on their kind of mental acuity, it's either depicted clearly or just with random words on the page. That's the one that I think I, sounds most interesting to me, which I'd like to read. And then there was The Unfortunates, which came in a box, a loose-leaf box designed to be read in any order by the reader. Apart from the first and the last chapter. Apart from the first and last chapter, sorry. Yeah. So, How's Mother Normal? It's, it's interesting because it does sound like amazing when you think about it. Uh, and it like the, the conceit is fantastic, whereas I feel like this book, the actual outcome is it's really I, I think it's really funny it's really light it actually makes me feel happy even though this is a ridiculous world <laughs> where everything is he doesn't think about it, you know very 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 minor things he will actually credit I got some some gave me some sweets that's a 0 0.0001 <laughs> yeah, as opposed yeah. to any whereas House Mother Normal I think is is just it, I, I think I got halfway through it and just didn't care <laughs> it was um, I mean there's, it's nice it's nice to look at uh, but I don't know maybe you should give it a go you can what get do you think of it um, Alan of House Mother Normal I really liked it I think that I prefer Christy Myler's on Double Entry mm -hmm. House Mother Normal it's really great but it's a book that basically is a conceit mm -hmm. which as you say is really nice I'm not convinced that as a as a experience to read mm -hmm. it really stacks up to what it could have done yeah. but it's really good I mean it's really enjoyable I, I liked it a lot I think um Albert Angelo is also really, really great. Albert Angelo, I see that's one I've read about four months ago, and it kind of almost hit a little too close to home as she said he was a supply teacher. Um, <laughs> and he's just basically kind of drifting through life yeah. and ruminating on things. But I think it's a deeply sad book, Albert Angelo, as well as being having all these experimental parts on it. Well, he obviously was a very sad man, though, wasn't he? Yeah. Um, he was obsessed with the idea that he wouldn't live... Um, past, or he sorry, he would die young, 
and as it turned out, he uh, committed suicide at, at 40, 40 in a very violent manner as well. So, um, how did he commit suicide? He slit his wrists, so yeah. Mm. Um, he obviously was full of self hatred and, um, and just a, a lot of his opinions, I think, when it came to experimentalism, are a little bit, a little bit sort of bizarre as well. Um, he wants to control the way that readers read his work, um, without sort of, which completely goes against a lot of a lot of theory, doesn't it? A lot yeah. of critical theory about how you know the author's intentions, to a large extent, do not matter. Yeah, right. There isn't someone behind these words. So he, he, his, his idea was that he thought the novel form needed a kick up the arse. Yes, so that's basically it. So it's been the same since which is interesting. the 1850 or something, which is when you look at, because I don't feel like the work that he's done is anywhere, you know, I think if we're talking about experimental literature, can we drop the J-bomb? Go for it. Drop the J-bomb. Um, Jimmy Jazz, James <laughs> Joyce. Uh, compared to something like that I mean none of his work is very experimental at all I think. but that's but funny because he saw himself in you know as a sort of inheritor of that legacy hmm. as someone continuing that modernist yeah. um, you know modernist approach and I, well I thought it was interesting because when you look at something like um, Ulysses what you have the huge amount of different viewpoints and styles going on in there which is what you know would arguably make that experimental, but you know, uh, whereas Christy Mayon's own double entry is very easy, very readable, and the thing that makes it experimental is what we're looking at is the fact that the author is so involved in it; it's almost very conversational, like someone telling you a story and making it up as they go along. So, Which yeah. is so instead of having a huge amount of viewpoints, it's essentially just got one. Yeah, there's a good example where um, he. <laughs> Christy goes home and is chatting to his mum and she basically gives some, you know, what B.S. Johnson thinks is important backstory, but it's it's written in such a way that it's like, yeah, this is important backstory for the story and now I can be dispensed with and she gives all these sort of little monologues and then and then it says, and with that she died. Yeah. And Christy inherited her house. <laughs> and um, there are various sort of little devices like that. that where he's, you know, sort of drawing attention to, you know, the, that, yeah, that disposability of, of characters and things like that and the way that they're serving a purpose. But at the same time, I also found that kind of section really boring and thought that if you are doing that and you are showing how... Um, plot points and character points can be used to um, to create a story, then there are warmer, more interesting ways of doing that. And that didn't, yeah, that didn't engage me at all. You know, Brecht was exploring that, like, way before, way before this guy and did it to, um, you know, a better degree. Well, I, I thought that bit was amazing. Really, really enjoyed it. Um, just so that I can disagree with you, Jess. No, it's, That's uh, absolutely fine. But I, I liked, uh, I liked the fact, you know, he's talking about character development and how you build a character. So it's also it's all this commentary on the novel, and instead of having an exposition bot, he's got mother exposition bot yeah, going yeah. on. But I also, you know, it's a that part for me also felt like it was a big comment on society. Like a lot of this book is, although it's a comment on um, novels and the way things are built. Yeah, and I just thought it was very funny as well. But it, it, I, the, I think it would been a comment on the way that stories are told. You know, that's that's one of the things I remember from reading it. 
So it, it, it'll do something and it'll plod along for a little bit. And the language in the book is most of the time pretty accessible. Like you said, it's quite light and it's, it's re- reasonably fun. And then every now and then you'll just come across a word that is so ridiculously specialised, technical yeah. or difficult or long that you're just totally thrown out of it. There's no way that Christy Murray knows that word. So you're totally taken out of that and you have to go to the dictionary and like, look at what this, <laughs> what this crazy word is that B.S. Johnson has just used. Um, I really like that. Mm. That made me, I laughed whenever that happened. Um, and I did feel like it, that was a little wink to me that... Yeah, he's drawing attention how, to the artifice. Yeah, we know, we know what's happening here. Like, I'm, I'm, these words are being used very deliberately and carefully to make you feel a certain way. Um, but I can also mess with you through the process of doing that. I, I always like that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. What, like, defenestration when everyone's reading and going, <laughs> I already know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> so, you, 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 you've read a fair bit of uh, weird stuff, John. Recommend something else. Well, actually, what I was going to do is I was thinking more in the kind of, what is it about experimental stuff that attracts certain people? Because I was trying to work out myself, why am I reading Thomas Pynchon all the time and mm-hmm. why have I read all this stuff and why do I like experimental music uh, apart from the fact I'm really pretentious it's <laughs> is there something else there something no no I don't I just I just wondered if you guys had any ideas about what attracts people to either making it I, so I, 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 I the think the attraction to making it maybe. I feel that I mean I don't know I, I suspect Jess is going to disagree and other, lots of other people would I feel that any time you any, any person because me and Jess both are graduates in English and you're not John but no. we, we did English at university and I feel like any time a person studies something to a point where you reach a certain point of, of having enough knowledge about a form that you become interested in how that form is like put together so people are really into comedy stand-up comedy mm-hmm. you get casual fans and, and, and they just go there because they like to laugh and that's fine but the people who are really into it they're often they're often drawn to stand-up comedians that will like deconstruct the form, play with it, because they they know so much about how it's done that that becomes interesting, that the way it's done suddenly starts to become an interest. Yeah. Um, and I feel like, for me, the same with literature, once you've read so many novels, th- eventually you reach a point where you become interested in prose and, and how it's put together, Definitely. and you become interested in what it means to be reading a book, and what that process is, and then there are writers that, that will feed you entertainment based on that yeah and I think that that at a certain point that becomes appealing I think and I think it depends on um it could be your mindset you know at whatever point as well like sometimes you're definitely in the mood to be challenged or to explore that kind of thing um but you know you're better for not doing <laughs> for doing that than me because when I was teaching I basically during term time could read Agatha Christie crime <laughs> and that was about that was all, all that was all my with. tired brain could cope with um, because I was doing so much extra analysis and things like that and you know in in school but one of the one of the books that I it might be my favorite book and I don't have favorite things but I was I was thinking about this yesterday um, Infinite Jest took me um, nine months to read, you yeah, know, yeah. I could have gestated a baby in that amount of time. And, um, and <laughs> in the time it took me to read that instead book. Instead you the blog. <laughs> <laughs> and um, instead, yeah. Um, and, I, and that wasn't because I kept picking it up and putting it down or anything in a sort of like, oh, I've got to read more of this. Because um, it's, 
what, a thousand pages. Um, it's pretty large. You've got to have two bookmarks, one for the your normal progress and one for the end notes. Yep. And um, and and it's um, incredible. It and uh, I finished it and just started reading everything I could about it because I was so desperate to sort of get back into that world. And yet at the same time, one of David Foster Wallace's sort of oh, kind of principles is that he's not trying to create some sort of realistic illusory experience for the reader to get into it is all very much a, a commentary and um it's, does it feel like it was a puzzle to be solved as well because i think sometimes that's what you get with experimental things is that you know it's almost like a crossword how yeah um only only to a sort of limited only to I an extent like, where I things are like Wallace. yeah because i think there's enough of a humanity in what he does well, that well this is this is it and this is why I, I value something like that and um, other things that he's written so much over things like um, like this B.S. Johnson book because it because Wallace is really human and he's he's an anti-ironist yeah, he's he's against he's against that and and so and so what he is writing is very warm in a way that that this just really isn't and it kind of leaves me cold so, um, Actually, you know, apart think, from that... I'd say I didn't feel that about this book. I can understand, I definitely see where you're coming from about it being cold, but I don't. I didn't feel like this book was cold at all. I really felt I get to know Johnson as a person, I suppose, mm -hmm. from it. Um, although, you're right, everything is kind of coached in irony, but I think that irony is just definitely... Well, yeah, yeah I, <laughs> I mean, Johnson's writing in the 60s as well. You know, it's a different uh, time in the... Than when Infinite Jest came out in '96, I think, mm -hmm. and that does make a difference. I mean, Wallace is responding in some ways to movements in literature that have gone before him, you know, which he thought had introduced this idea of kind of metafictive irony or distance from humanity that he wanted. I think what what what's interesting to, about me today, Foster, about David Foster Wallace, is that he sort of values that. He doesn't mm. want to chuck it away. Because he said, well, it is important, you know, because that's sort something... Of blending, that isn't he? Yeah, but he wanted to... He wanted to... There's a great interview where he said that he could only watch The Simpsons. He's like, I think The Simpsons is important art, and it's great art, but I can only watch it for so long before I have to go and look at a flower. And I think that kind of sums up where I, how I feel Foster Wallace is, you know. Um, Doesn't... <laughs> he was actually on The Simpsons, but not as himself... Um, so there's, there's a shout out to David Foster Wallace in uh, one of the later seasons, which no one should ever watch, but they go on a cruise ship. And if you've read um, uh, a supposedly fun thing that I'll never do oh, again, yeah, which yeah. is a really great collection of essays about how much he loves tennis. Um, <coughs> that's a joke for me. <laughs> um, but he goes on a cruise ship and he wears... Uh, he doesn't realise he's supposed to have formal wear every single night and all he got was a fake tuxedo t-shirt um, <laughs> which he has to wear every single night on the table um, and it's just kind of like a running joke and he talks about the people around him but everyone's dressed to the nines and he's just wearing this fake tuxedo t-shirt and uh, he's just in the background of a scene on the thing you just see him for a brief bit in his t-shirt which I thought was quite a nice shout out yeah one of my one of my uh, books I'd like, I'd, I wanted to give a, a shout out to is that the, the a lot of people class as experimental? I suppose is Pale Fire, mm. um, by Nabokov. Um, have you do you know Pale I've Fire? Not, I've not read that one. No. It's great. Pale so um, it's probably Nabokov's best work. After after Lolita, it's probably his best known one. Um, and Pale Fire 
It is. I can't think of another. I can't think of another like it. Um, feel free to correct me, but I, I can't think of one that's that's done anything like it. So, the novel opens with a poem, which is a thousand lines or nine hundred ninety nine lines, called Pale Fire. Um, I was the shadow with the wax wing slain by the false azure in the window pane. I was the. Uh, I forget the rest. Um, and this poem is written by a fictional poet um, called John Shade. So Nabokov's written this poem. Um, and it's John Shade's final poem that he wrote just before he died and completed just before his death. So that, that's the first <coughs> section of the book. And what follows after that, so what makes it the bulk of the book, is a commentary upon that poem in the form of like an academic writing about it and, and writing annotations on it, which is done by John Shade's friend. Um, and through those annotations, we learn a lot about their relationship, about the process of, of uh, writing the poem, and about what is really going on, and that a plot develops to do with the kind of toxic, poisonous relationship that, that this friend had to the poet. And there's other weird stuff like, is is the is is this narrator, is this uh, this friend, actually hallucinating all sorts of different things? There's a possibility that he's come from this place called Zembla, this fictional state in Eastern Europe that he might be the king of. There's lots and lots of these kind of strange elements that are brought in, but it's just really, really cleverly done experiment and it's perfectly realised you know mm. and it, it's so kind of artistically rich it doesn't it's like what you said before about uh, people only publish their successes and even though it's a kind of experimental idea it's so successful it's this little little book of perfection that sounds great I did mm. try and start it but I haven't got the soul of a poet and I don't like the poem so I've never <laughs> got any further yeah you do have to get through the poem that uh, that idea of um a sort of different work of art being at the centre of a, a novel, I guess, is the same kind of idea in Cloud Atlas yeah, as yeah. well. So um, Cloud Atlas being a composition in, in that book, which which features in um, several other David Mitchell books as well. I say several, I can think of one. <laughs> um, so I, in some ways, I don't see that as an experimental book at all, though. I think maybe people thought that it was a bit of a gimmick, given that there's six different narratives and it's I don't know I guess they're kind of all sort of sandwiched together but it, it you know it goes back to it goes forward in history and then it goes goes back again um and things are interlinked in in ways that you as a reader have to work at yeah. so I guess mm. in in that sense um yeah you're being like David Foster Wallace's ideal sort of active reader you're not being a passive reader in that sense but um yeah, other, other than that, though, I definitely don't feel like he's someone who's into experimental practices. In earlier books, and he's definitely got less experimental as time's gone on as well, although in earlier books he has um, interesting things going on. Like in Number Nine Dream, um, there are nice sections where the um, central character is sort of staying elsewhere and the sort of warm-up writings of the writer in whose house he's staying kind of interfere with the narrative so you get these weird adventures of a character called goat writer <laughs> and, um, and that's kind of interesting i'd like but to read I've, I've only read cloud atlas by him so I'd, i would like to read more i'm just thinking about in terms of the terms of experimental are we really talking about metafiction here or are we talking you know fiction that comments upon fiction or it's a good question and um, because i was thinking in terms of we're talking about experimental things and it's interesting about kind of how the form of a book kind of can dictate what you can do in terms of experiments. So you've got 
your traditional narrative, books and the novel didn't always exist, and then it kind of found its form in the 17th, 18th, 19th century. Yeah. And then you realise that you can do different kind of things. So you talked about um, B.S. Johnson actually literally cutting a hole in his thing. So he's actually using the medium that he works with yeah, to, that's rather than... Rather in that case, rather than kind of playing away way around with na the way elements work in it, and even and in you, this one, the the layout of some sections yeah. is uh, so you've got uh, done, and you, you've got the double entry system actually put into the books. So I was kind of thinking about that. You've got um, the unfortunates, yeah, as well. Which is in a, the unfortunates is in a box, so again, yeah. it's playing with it's like messing about with the form that you yeah. are engaging in. So then you've got Infinite Jest, which messes with the literal form of a book because you have to have two bookmarks for it um, because it's, you know, as you're saying, it's, um, uh, you know, a comment upon novels. And then you've got um, something like uh, Nabokov, which doesn't, Pale File, which doesn't really play with the actual physicalness of the book. So I was thinking, is it going to change with the advent of Kindle, you know, we're still having things to read. So the experimental work I was thinking of um, is MS Paint Adventures, uh, <laughs> which is uh, called Homestuck, which is basically, um, has been described as the Ulysses of the internet on the <laughs> Idea Channel, mainly because it's so freaking long and there's so many different viewpoints and it's confusing. But the way that that's experimental is it's based on old click and touch it, um, text adventures, but with really basic graphics, so that you'd have seen in the early eighties. Um, if and you know, I don't know if you guys played them when you were growing up. You know, what will you do now? Go forward. You've been eaten yeah, by the dragon. Yeah. That kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's. I mean, that's got its own meta narrative. That they're all part of this. They're all in this game, and the game actually affects their real lives, and you can decide what they do. Uh, but it's like 20,000 pages long at the moment. Um, some <laughs> of the pages are flash animations, other bits are bits of text speak in between the two the characters. Uh, some of them are little games that you can I, actually I, play. I do feel like any sort of experimental work today would have to be some form of that. It would have to be something that engaged. To... B.S. Johnson said that he wanted the novel to reflect the, the way that we consume information mm -hmm. in the time that he was writing, so the TV age. Yeah. I think now we are, any writing would have to update itself to, to take into account the fact that we now uh, have so many voices, so we're mediated, things come to us that are mediated through so many different channels. We, we go onto the, we go onto computers, we talk to friends, we are constantly uh, being. It would ha I think an experimental novel today would have to be like that mm. and be able to jump between yeah, media and, and do things, joyfully. Does things stop being experimental? Because you think about the novels that used to be forms of letters between people. Yeah. I mean, that, that must have been novel and experimental at one point. Or the um, no? sorry, it just made me think of things that I read early on in my degree. Yeah. <laughs> I was turning in my nose, like yes, those. like Samuel Evelina. Richardson. Yeah, I mean, Evelina, my God, that by Fanny Burney. Yeah, the. the <laughs> uh, and then there's things like, um, what do they call them? There's a word for them, I forget. Novels where things are left, are left out. So there's that book by Georges Perec where there's no letter E. Avoid. Um, um, there's no letter E in it. And what I like about that is that it's not just there's no letter E in it, it's that the characters begin to realise that there is something missing from their experiences of the world. And as soon as they figure out what it is, they die. And that's the plot of the novel. And it's all told about letter E. 
And you've, well, George, that's, that's the word is the word. I think it's it is. experimental novels. In you make me think, are they all about conceits then? Because you've got Nabokov's conceit of writing about the uh, the poem poem. There's another book that George Perrick wrote about an apartment block where you had where he wrote about it like jumping around like it was a chessboard um, life a user's manual, which is one of the finest books ever written. I think. Mm. Um, I couldn't really get into a void. It was just like, oh look, there's no lettery. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I feel it can be. I don't think they have to be. I think the best ones, like as I, I for me, the best sort of books that do that are ones that are able to unify mm-hmm. some sort of formal experimentation or some kind of interesting idea with something real and artistic yeah. at the heart of it. Um, so my number one for that would be Gravity's Rainbow, yeah. um, which I thought was absolutely amazing. Very similar to you with Infinite Jess. Jess, um, it took me a year to read it, and mm. I, as soon as I finished it, I just wanted to read it again. Mm, cool. And uh, so I'm reading Against the Day at the moment, which is similar oh, in gosh. some ways to um, Gravity's Rainbow. But then I remembered Gravity's Rainbow is really hard to know what's going on because it just flits and flits and flits. Page to page, it can yeah, be. Yeah, and it, so that's, and I, I think. It's interesting because I don't have a problem with that, but I've been I've been reading a book of short stories which I didn't think was very experimental called Magic for Beginners by Kelly Link, which is one of the best things that I've read in years. Absolutely amazing, but um, people absolutely hated it when I was reading around it on Goodreads because the, <laughs> the stories were ambiguous in the endings and they just couldn't take it. I can't stand ambiguity in my stories, so even for them, this was too experimental. For me, was just hey, it's a bit weird. Yeah. For them, this was too much. So, um, yeah. any books that are too much for you guys because the big one for me obviously is uh, Finnegan's Wake absolute waste of time <laughs> I've not tried it I do remember reading uh, it suddenly occurred to me I do remember reading Naked Lunch love it um, <laughs> by William Burroughs whilst and, and at the time that I was reading it I just got a job I must have been pretty young at um, the Casbah nightclub <laughs> yeah. in Sheffield and my first um, stint there was working on the door. And so I, I brought this book along to read during quiet times and everything. And um, the number of people who commented on my reading and who seemed to have already read this book amazed me <laughs> because of what it was. It was like, wow, there's this whole, uh, you know, underground sort of William Burroughs at his most experimental sort of fandom. Um, <laughs> within Sheffield's like rock music scene, and um, I really don't, I really don't believe that that was the case, um, and why they were so fond about it because Did you, you know, just look at me going, you can't read. And <laughs> <laughs> no, I was just bewildered, um, and and they were like, oh yeah, it's really great, isn't it? Are you enjoying it? And I was just thinking, I don't really know what's going on. He's he's a bit crazy, isn't he? So I, I mean, whereas like, I love like loads of other William Burroughs stuff. I don't know if there's anything that's too much. There's things that I don't feel that I understand. And there's things that I feel like I struggle to engage with. I struggle to engage with um, somebody like J.H. Prynne, poet. I just find his, his work, uh, it's just, I think I'm, I'm, just, I'm just not ready for it. <laughs> you know, it's like, um, it's like the, uh, it's the, it's the bitch's brew. Of, of poetry, it's just you're not ready. You're making me think about John, what John Peel said about a Japanese noise artist. He said, you know, I, I feel like the fault lies with me and not them because <laughs> well, I just can't, I just not, just can't get it. Um, and in terms of books that have conceits that are interesting that also manage to do something 
that also really gripping and good. I have to mention House of Leaves. Oh yeah. Have you read House of Leaves? I've not. No, but I've heard loads about it, and it's very cool wish book. List. Yeah, very very cool, but good object to have as well because <laughs> it's really good to. It, it's uh, typographically like the it plays a lot with the typography, so you get sections of the book where it's mirrored writing, sections where the writing goes in circles, sections where it's just a big mess on the page, um, sections where it depletes and gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and almost kind of fades away to a point of just one letter on the page. All sorts of uh, things going on there. And also what you have in House of Leaves is multiple voices, so multiple layers between you and the action. So it's, it's that whole thing which was common in the old days of like, mm. oh, I found this cachet of letters. That I'm now going to present to you. Yeah. Mm. There's a lot of footnotes where it's like, um, where, where it's being discussed by the person that found these letters, and reading that as well. And it's like a horror story. It's really great, House of Leaves. Um, the footnotes and the endnotes from Infinite Jest that we were talking about also remind me of Barney's version, a novel by Mordecai Richler, about um, a man with Alzheimer's who's, who's left his memoirs. Um, and as we made it to a film starring Paul Giamatti couple of years ago and as we read we read the comments upon it by his son who's like editing these memoirs and they gradually cast more and more doubt on uh, what you're reading Barney's version's great does anybody else think of Paul Giamatti as kind of like the netto version of Philip Seymour Hoffman the netto version <laughs> not that he's worse than anything else he's just a bit cheaper Aww. so you see him you think well, they, they wanted Hoffman but they couldn't afford him well they can't have him anymore oh so he's dead Yes, but <laughs> yeah, that's that's basically the way. I mean, I I I enjoy him in films, but like Philip Seymour Hoffman got his bigger roles, and uh, Giamatti now has to do whatever. <laughs> okay, I think we'll end it there. Oh, can I just yell names? Borges. Yeah. Sorry, Borges. Talk go on. Talk about talk about. I don't. Mm, I don't know because I don't know how Borges fits into it. It's almost like one of the things when you think about experimental is you think sprawling, and he was the opposite. He just put everything down to. Uh, the bare minimum. Um, their famous short story um, about um, the map that's the same size as a kingdom is like three sentences long. <laughs> and I think he's really interesting because he just, he kind of formally, you know, there's no messing about with typography or anything like that in his books. It's all just pure ideas, but I think you'd argue it's as experimental as anything else. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. I mean, mm. um, I haven't read him. Um, I was, Labyrinth is, is incredible, and it's it's really interesting actually reading someone like Borges because when you're looking at his politics, which doesn't particularly come through, because uh, most of the time the people we tend to read tend to be very left wing. Uh, people are kind of celebrated as artists, but he was very much on the right, and he said that's what stopped him getting a um, a you know, um, the Nobel Prize for Literature. So what I'm suggesting is that we only read right-wing novelists. So I'm thinking Jeffrey and, Archer. And is that is that another another theme <laughs> that we can have going right, ahead? Right-wing writers. Yeah, and Rand and yeah. right, the right-wing. She, she, she goes on towards deaths, just her own little thing, doesn't she? She goes, <laughs> yeah. she goes past. She goes beyond. Yeah. Did you? There's just a slight. Uh, someone once rode around America, turning their GPS on and off, to. Uh, write the words read rand across the united states <laughs> spent two months doing this and uh, once they realized they could make their gps spell things because he thought it was a really important message 
I don't think there's anywhere we can take it from there. So no. um, thanks so much for listening, everybody. Once again, uh, look in the description below to find links to Twitter and Facebook and things. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and please uh, join us again next time. Thank you.